going to start tonight where we ended last night. Read this one with me out loud off the screen. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I want you to see there is a method to my madness. There is a progression here. We're on a journey together. We had to talk about pride and humility last night. We had to identify our pride, our stubbornness, our independence towards God, our self-sufficiency. We had to expose those things so that we would fully embrace humility. And remember, humility is not thinking less of you, but rather thinking more of God and of others. Humility is a place of dependence upon God. You're saying tonight, Christ is enough. Were those just words or they, do they actually reflect the disposition of your heart? Christ is enough. God opposes the proud. That picture of God stiff-arming the proud. But he lavishes grace to the humble. Back in our resource area, we've got some little wristbands. On those wristbands, you'll find our, our ministry name and logo. But you'll also find four little letters. G-I-N-Y. That's an acrostic. It stands for God, I need you. Now, it may seem silly to you to invest a couple of bucks and wear a, a wristband around with God, I need you. But if that's what it takes for you to begin consciously depending on the Lord, this conscious dependence on the Lord, if that would help you, that'd probably be a pretty good investment. In your Bibles tonight, turn with me to the New Testament. We're Old Testament, we're New Testament. Tonight, New Testament, Romans chapter 5, your workbook page 16. Romans chapter 5, and in our workbook page 16, our topic tonight, standing in grace. And I'm going to define that phrase for you here in just a moment. Our revival truth off your outline, the revived life continues to grow in grace Learning to appropriate God's divine resources for obedient living. Now here's my observation. You people love the Lord. We who love the Lord, we love to talk about how we've been saved by grace. We love to sing about amazing grace, but here's my observation. Most of us don't understand what it means to live by grace. Two dots I want you to connect. God's grace and obedient living. For you and I to experience a consistent obedience. What do you mean, Greg? As we're growing in the grace and knowledge of Christ, we're going to sin less and obey more. My goal in this Christian life, this side of heaven, is not perfection. I'm not sure that will come this side of heaven. I know it comes on that side of heaven. My goal, this side of heaven, is consistency. I believe that I can sin less and obey more. Now, for you to cultivate that habit of righteous living, holy living, consistent obedience, you must understand and appropriate God's grace. Now, keep your finger there in Romans 5. Let me just lay a foundation. This is going to be very uh, elementary to many in the room, but we're on a journey together. I don't want to leave anybody behind. Understanding the importance of grace. Number one, you enter into a relationship with God on the basis of grace. 
This is important. If you don't get grace, you don't get God. Because he is the God of all grace. And we relate to him on the basis of grace. We see it in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. A passage that will be familiar to many. Let's read it together out loud. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now, Paul, the author here, the human author, is presenting two ways by which people approach God. Two ways by which people seek to endear themselves to God, to enjoy and experience God's favor, God's blessing. The first approach, the correct approach, the scriptural approach is the approach of grace. Now, this approach begins with the premise, there's absolutely nothing I can do to earn God's favor, acceptance, or approval. I'll never be deserving of it. I'll never be worthy of it. So I just come as a spiritual pauper, and I, I throw myself on the mercy of God. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I put my faith and trust in Christ. By grace you're saved through faith. I've placed my faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. His death and resurrection sufficient for my salvation. And I enter into a relationship with God. Now that's the grace approach. The other approach he summarizes with the word works. We could call this the performance approach. The idea is that I have to earn God's favor. I have to earn God's love earn God's approval. So I work hard in this life. I do a lot of good works, more good works than bad works. And I'm going to stand before God someday and he's going to put the good works on one scale and the bad works on the other scale. And I'm going to hold my breath and it's just going to maybe eke out good over bad. And God's going to say, it's close, but come on in. Now that's the works approach. And by the way, that's our default because of our fallenness, that's what we're attracted to. That's what makes sense to us. I can prove it. Have spiritual conversations with 10 people tomorrow. Ask two questions. Do you believe in heaven? Yeah. How does a person get to go to heaven? At least 9 out of 10, if not all 10, will say something like this. You live a good life. See, that appeals to us. That's uh, attractive to us. And let me show you why. Look at the end of that verse. So that no one may what? boast now look if i'm standing in the presence of god someday and i'm being welcomed into heaven because of my goodness because of my righteousness because of my good works where's the spotlight it's on me isn't it but god says no one's going to boast except boasting in christ who christ is and what christ has done for us second point your relationship with God will grow in proportion to your understanding of grace. Your relationship with God will grow in proportion to your understanding of grace. This is important. You never graduate from grace. You never check grace off your to-do list. Grace, been there, done that, I'm ready to move on. No, we go grace to grace to grace from start to finish but here's my observation we start the Christian life very grace oriented we get that 
Not by works, by, uh, it's, it's all of Jesus and none of me. All of God and none of me. I understand that and we come to God and we, we appropriate his forgiveness. We start with this strong grace orientation. But watch, a few years down the road, the busyness of life, the weight of growing responsibility. We wake up one morning and we say, oh God, it's all on me. God, this burden is too heavy for me to bear. I just can't do it. In a sense, you have fallen from grace. You've reverted from a grace orientation back to your default, a works orientation. Here's what I'm praying for us tonight. I've been praying in preparation for our service. My prayer is based on 2 Peter 3.18. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's what I'm praying for us tonight, that we're going to grow together in grace. I want to introduce you to a couple of Texans. Did I mention to you folks that I'm from Texas, by the way? I just wanted to make sure. All right, these folks, this is Mr. and Mrs. Ira Yakes. Back to the 1920s, they were living out in West Texas. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to that part of our fair state. Let me say it's not the prettiest part of our state. Imagine just the opposite of what you all enjoy here. Number one, no trees. I mean, literally, you can go miles and miles and not see a single tree. And it's flat. It is so flat, you can stand on your front porch and watch your dog run away for three days. Now, these folks are living out in West Texas, and they're just scratching out a living, farming and ranching, barely making it. One day, there's a knock on the door, and it's a geologist from an oil company. And he says, we've been doing serious testing in your area, and we have reason to believe there are significant oil deposits on your property. If you'll sign this contract, let us drill, uh, drill a test well. If we find what we think is there, you're going to be a very wealthy man. And he says, what have I got to lose? So he signs, they dig the well, and they find what remains one of the largest oil deposits in the continental U.S., the Yates Pool, it's called. Since the 20s, more than a billion barrels of oil have come out of the ground. Overnight, this couple goes literally from impoverished to wealth beyond their imagination. Now, here's my question. When did that oil and all the wealth that it represented, when did that become theirs? You say, well, when they dug the well and they found it. No. The moment they purchased the land with its mineral rights, all of that oil and all the wealth it represented was theirs. They didn't know what they had. They didn't know what they had. Some of you are living in spiritual poverty tonight. You're not experiencing this revived life, this abundant life. Why? Because you do not understand what you have in grace. Now, we're going to look at two dimensions of grace tonight. There are multiple dimensions. I could spend the rest of the conference on grace and not begin to exhaust the topic. But for time's sake, we're going to look at two. The first you're more familiar with, more than likely the second you are less familiar with. All right, the first we're going to call saving grace. Saving grace. God, through his initial gift of grace, God saves us from guilt and condemnation. 
God saves us from guilt and condemnation. Now we see this explained in Romans 5, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now pause a moment. Paul comes from a legal background. He's using a legal term. We've been justified. God, the holy and divine judge, has pronounced us not guilty. Oh, yes, we are guilty, but because Jesus Christ paid our price, died in our place, God can pronounce us justified, not guilty. We now have peace with God. He's not my enemy. I'm no longer a rebel. I have peace with God. And then the description in verse 2, describing our new relationship, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Now, there's a couple of phrases I'm going to want you to catch on to tonight. Here's the first one. We stand in grace. We stand in grace. My standing before God, my position before God is one of grace. Grace below, grace above. Grace to the right, to the left, in front, behind, I stand in grace. What does that mean? I stand in a place of favor with God. I stand in a place of acceptance before God. Now hear me. Because I stand in grace, there's nothing that I can do to either improve my standing or to diminish my standing before God because I stand in grace. Standing in grace gives me incredible blessings. Uh, my name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. I've been adopted into God's forever family. The Holy Spirit of God has taken up residence in my heart and forgiveness. I have been fully forgiven of all my sin. Ephesians 1, 7, in him, Christ. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to what class? The riches of his grace. Now, there's the second phrase I want you to catch. Not only do you stand in grace, but because you stand in grace, you have access to the riches of God's grace. What does that look like? Unlimited forgiveness. Unlimited forgiveness. All my sins, past, present, even the sins I've yet to commit have been Fully forgiven. Now some of you are scratching your heads and you're saying, now Greg, Sunday night, we read 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. How do we rectify these two verses? We do so by understanding there are two levels of forgiveness. The level I'm describing right now is described as positional or judicial forgiveness. All sin has been fully forgiven. But there's another level, the level where we live, experiential forgiveness. I can have judicial, positional forgiveness, but still feel guilt, condemnation, and shame. Why? Because I appropriate that forgiveness through confession and repentance. Pastor, I know you've had this conversation of the pastors in the room, probably, probably elders as well. I had it so many times as a pastor, still have it. I hear someone comes up and says, Greg, I hear what you're saying. And, you know, I believe that God has fully forgiven me. 
but I just can't forgive myself. Some of you have said that same thing. Now, when folks would come to me, and I was a young, inexperienced pastor, I'm going to be honest, I didn't really know how to answer that, how to respond to that. So I would say helpful things like, well, try harder. Get over it. And then, you know, as I began to study God's word, now this is important. I don't find anywhere in scripture where I am commanded to forgive myself. See, Jesus says there's only one who has the authority to forgive, and that's God himself. See, the problem is that it's not that you can't forgive yourself. Here's the problem. You have yet to fully grasp and appropriate God's forgiveness. We always want to make it about us. That's just our perverted pride kicking in again. Let me illustrate. My first church was a small church out in the country uh, northeastern Oklahoma. I'd been out making some visits and I was driving back to our little town and I saw smoke. As I got closer, I realized there was a, a fire, a, a, a brush fire just burning up the prairie and heading toward our little town. And I could see that men were gathering to form a fire line. So I came wheeling into the driveway of our little church parsonage there where we lived. I ran into the house. I said, Patty, the, the Prairie's on fire. It's headed towards the town. Men are gathering. I've got to go help them fight the fire. She said, you don't know anything about fighting fire. I said, I know, but I'm the husband, the protector. I got to do my thing. And so I didn't know anything about fighting fires. Now, a couple of years earlier, I had worked in the oil fields, and I had these big boots. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just put my big boots on, and I can kind of help stomp it out. So I, I pull my car over there, and, I, and I'm walking to the fire line, and there's a guy you know, kind of there in front of me. And, and I noticed on the ground, there was a little fire right there in the prairie. And I walked up and I just stomped it out. And there was another little fire and I walked up and I stomped it out. And then I noticed the guy in front of me was lighting matches and draw, uh, dropping them in the, in the grass. I said, hey, buddy, what are you doing? Well, you know what he was doing. He was creating a controlled burn. See, there's this Law in physics. God has embedded a law in physics that has a parallel law in the spiritual world. And here's the law. Something can only burn once. Oh, hear me, church. As Jesus Christ hung on that cross, God took all my sin. God took all your sin. God took all the pain and the hurt of our sin. God took all the punishment that our sin would bring us and he poured it out on his son. The holy, righteous wrath of God burned into his son, and it was burned up. And there's none left for you. I was leading a conference in Manchester, Tennessee. It was Sunday morning, testimony services. We're going to experience this coming Sunday. Young couple came to the mic, and she began speaking. She said, a year ago, I made the worst decision of my life. I made the decision to abort my child. She said, to make it worse, I knew if I told him, he'd try to stop me. So I lied to him, and I told him I lost the child. And she said, I've been living with such guilt and shame and condemnation. It was beginning to affect our relationship together. And so in desperation, I said, could we go find a church? I need 
I need to know God. And thankfully, they found a very gracious, loving, receiving church. And they began to attend there and be ministered to. Well, they came to the summit. And then as she stood up in her testimony, she said, Tuesday night, when he talked about grace, she said, I realized for the very first time that God could even forgive me. And she says, I was able to share with him what I did. And he stepped to the mic and affirmed that he had fully forgiven her as well. Now, as good as that is, that's saving grace. It actually gets better. There's a second dimension of grace. We're going to spend the rest of our time on this. We're going to call it sustaining grace. See, the grace that saves you is the grace that sustains you. What is sustaining grace? Here's our working definition. Through his ongoing gift of grace, God gives me the desire and power to live in harmony with him and with his word. The desire and power. We see it in the text. Paul moves from saving grace. We're going to pick it up at verse 17, Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Now that would be Adam. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. All right, pause. Here's your next phrase, the abundance of grace. How much grace does God give you? Just enough to get by? No, God gives you an abundance of grace. And through this abundance of grace, we reign in life. What does that mean? In the context, we reign over the power of indwelling sin. We reign over the power of sin. Pick it up at verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, pause. Let me paraphrase verse 20 for you. The phrase, the law came in to increase the trespass. Where sin increased, grace abounded. Let me paraphrase that for you. The more you sin, the more grace you get. You say, Greg, are you sure about that? The more you sin, that's what it says. Where sin abounded, uh, where, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. The more you sin, the more grace you get. You say, well, that doesn't sound fair. Thankfully, God doesn't deal with us on the basis of fairness. If God dealt with us on the basis of fairness, we'd all be in hell. Grace means God gives you what you don't deserve. Now, let me tell you why it has to be this way. Because the more you sin, the more grace you need. See, the more I sin, the more grace I need. Grace for forgiveness as well as grace to overcome the power of sin in my life. Now, someone's sitting there thinking, uh, I kind of like this arrangement, Greg. I mean, this is my get-out-of-jail-free card, right? I can live however I can. I can do whatever I want, and God's grace is going to take care of me. You know, it's almost as if God was reading your mind. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? That God's grace increases as we sin? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now notice he's asking questions. Are we to continue in sin? 
Are we to continue in willful, deliberate sin? Do we flaunt the grace of God? And his answer, by no means. It's the strongest possible negative in the original language. God forbid, may it never be. Why? How can we who died to sin still live in it? Now be careful with that phrase. He's not saying that sin is dead in you. I've been a Christ follower for 40 years. Sin is still alive and kicking in me. It kicked me today. I had to fight it again. He's not saying that sin is dead in you, but rather he's saying you are dead to sin. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, pause. When you and I come and put our faith and trust in Christ, we identify with Christ both in his death and in his resurrection. Something in me dies. My old relationship to sin dies and now I have been born again, raised to new life. Look at verse 6. And I'm jumping around for time's sake. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Now let's take that phrase. No longer be enslaved to sin. Let's, let's talk about the difference. A fundamental difference between believer and unbeliever. One similarity, we both sin. We both sin. But there's a vast difference in why we sin. Unbeliever sins because he or she is a slave to sin. They're just living true to their nature. Fallen, separated from God, lost. They sin because they are slaves to sin. But watch. Born again into God's forever family. Now living under grace. I sin, but for a radically different reason. I sin because I choose to sin. Now, you don't like to hear that. You want to think I sin because I have to sin. It's always been this way. My dad was that way. My mom was that way. I'm this way. Oh, my friend, you are disavowing God's incredible work of grace in your life. Look down to verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to obey that uh, to make you obey its passions. Now let me paraphrase verse 12 for you. Stop sinning. Isn't that what it says? Don't let sin reign in your body. Now look at verse 14. Sin will have no bit dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. Let me paraphrase. Stop sinning. You say, I can't do that. Under grace, you can. Under grace, you can. Let me illustrate. One of my men come, comes to see me. Oh, Pastor Greg, you got to pray for me. What's going on? You know, I work down there with a bunch of, just a bunch of rough old guys. And they just use the worst, vile kind of language. And I find myself, I, I just start saying the same things. Even taking God's name in vain. I feel so ashamed, but I just can't help myself. And here's how I respond. I'm shocked. We've spent a lot of time together. I've never heard you use that language. 
Oh, Pastor Greg, I would never say those things around you. Now, what has he just admitted to me? When he's with me, he's choosing not to sin. And who am I? I'm nobody. If he can choose not to sin with these, when he's with me, he can choose not to sin when he's with them. The next guy comes in. Pastor Greg, you got to pray for me. What's going on? You know, everybody goes to bed at night, and I stay up by myself. And I get on that computer, and, and I just I watch things I shouldn't watch. And I feel so ashamed, but I just can't help myself. And I say, I'm shocked. I've been in your house. We watch ball games together. I've never seen you watch. Pastor Greg, I would never do that around you. See, here's the problem. We've given sin a buy. We don't even show up to the fight. We're not appropriating the grace of God. I want you to read this one off the screen with me, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Now, when you get to the little word all that's underlined, I want you to say that a little louder for emphasis sake. All right, here we go. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times you may abound in every good work. Now we call that a string of superlatives. The apostle Paul is going over the top to show us grace is all abounding, always sufficient, all things and all times. If you believe that this is God's word and true, then that verse has just stripped every excuse you've used to justify your sinful behavior. Because God says, my grace is sufficient for you. I'm curious. Anyone would say at this point, Greg, I need more grace in my life. I'm a believer. Anybody say that tonight? Greg, I need more grace in my life. I, I need to experience God's grace in this way, this sustaining grace. Anybody feel that way tonight? Okay, I see some hands in the room. I'm going to show you how you get more grace. How this becomes reality. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. By the way, here's your last phrase. Throne of grace. You see, for the child of God, it's not a throne of judgment. It's not a place of wrath. It's a throne of grace. It's a place of grace. Now, you might want to write this down. Probably the most important thing I've said all night. How do we get more grace? Are you ready? Here you go. To get more grace, you have to ask for it. You say, that's it? You have to just ask for it? Listen, if God made it any more hard or complicated, we'd miss it. That's what the promise is. Let him come and find grace to help. In time of need. I heard a message on sustaining grace over 20 years ago in my first Life Action Conference. In the course of that message, our revivalist shared an illustration that I've never forgotten. Imagine that it's your first day in heaven. Yes, you've graduated to glory. It's your first day in heaven. You're getting the grand tour. And your tour guide brings you to a place that seems strange. As far as you can see, all you see are garage doors. It's like bay after bay. It's far, just garage doors. 
And as you're standing there, one of those doors just goes flying open and an ambulance goes tearing out. And then a second later, another and another ambulance. And the, the sirens are blaring. And you look at your tour guide and you say, well, what is this? Oh, see, this is where God stores the riches of his grace. Somewhere a child of God has come to the throne of grace and cried out, God, I need your grace. And God has dispatched a grace ambulance. There's some men in the room earlier who were squirming as Brent was challenging you. And I understand, I've been there. The thought of praying with your wife terribly intimidates you. She's more spiritual than I am. I'm not even sure what I would know, uh, what I would say. And God's challenging you to step into your role as a spiritual leader in that home. But you say, I feel so ill-equipped. I feel so intimidated. What do you need? My friend, you need grace. There's your grace ambulance. There's a mom in the room. Again, I don't know who. A young mom. You love those kids. You love them like crazy. But they frustrate you. You grew up with an angry mom. And how many times did you tell yourself, well, I'm never going to be an angry mom. And what have you become? An angry mom. And you don't want to be critical, and you don't want your anger to kick in. And what do you need? You need grace. God, give me your grace to parent like you've called me to parent. There's your grace ambulance. Someone who's fighting a temptation. Anger, lust, some type of addictive behavior. You say, Greg, I'm giving it my best. And I'm going to say to you in love, hear me, your best is not good enough. You see, you need something more than your best. You need grace. If you walk out of this room saying, he's right, I just need to try harder, then you've completely missed it, my friend. Oh, we're not passive. We're all in on this. But you don't have the willpower. You don't have the strength. You don't have the resources. You need grace. One of our students, so thankful you're here tonight. You're fighting a battle for purity. You're watching friends fall left and right, giving away that precious gift of their virginity. And something in you says, I don't want to do that. But it's so hard. There's so much pressure. What do you need? You need to cry out to God. God, give me strength. Give me discipline. Give me the ability to wait. Give me grace. There's your grace ambulance. 